morning. Scripture reading this morning is Hebrews chapter 11, 17 through 19, and Genesis chapter 22. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Genesis chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddling his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boys will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, or to Father Abraham, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and found Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him, was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall be all the nations of the earth. Be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young man and they rose and went again to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. That's the word of the Lord of the God. That's a lot of reading. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. My name is Pat. If you haven't had a chance to meet me yet, I'm one of the elders here. And uh, if you want to know why you haven't had a chance to meet me, you can talk to me afterwards. I'll tell you what my life is like. Um, but that was intense, right? I mean, for all of the length of it and for um, our familiarity with the story, 
I hope you actually found the story a little bit shocking. I mean, what we just read should prompt some serious questions in the hearts of honest readers. I mean, hadn't this poor guy been through enough already? Why on earth is God treating him like this? And doesn't the Bible forbid human sacrifice? I mean, what's going on with God commanding Abraham to do something that God himself condemns? And doesn't God already know what's going on in Abraham's heart? I mean, why does he need to test him? Maybe even more personal, could something like this actually happen to me? And add to that, it, it sh intensifies things further in that the writers of the New Testament seem to think that this particular story is one of those definitive examples of how your faith and my faith should be playing out in situations like this. In fact, James, who writes the letter after Hebrews, indicates that this is kind of that pinnacle moment in Abraham's life, that definitive point in time when his faith is justified. It should be equally evident from all these questions that this kind of shock, this kind of kick to the gut is exactly what God intended. He wants to provoke these questions, not just for Abraham, but for everyone who has read about this episode ever since. And so while I don't propose this morning that I shall be able to answer all of these questions, um, I do hope that we can maybe take a closer look at what's going on and find some suggestions, some help on why this episode in Abraham's life illustrates the enduring faith that the writer of Hebrews is calling us to model and practice. So with that said, let's, let's pray and, and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, you are good. You are good so deep that we cannot even plumb the depths of your goodness. You are good so far so extensively that we just can't even imagine. And it's complicated with the fact that we're just kind of somewhat good some of the time. Everything else about us is just such a mix of conflicting motives and passions and emotions. We get good, but Father, you are good. You're true trustworthy. Your steadfast love endures forever. And somehow in this passage we look at this morning, Abraham's faith and ours rests on that bedrock foundation. And, and we ask you for your help in enabling us to see what that means for us and how it is you are calling us to live in these days of our lives. So help us, we pray, through Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's the main point that I want to propose from this set of passages we read this morning. Um, being chosen by God will result in being tested by God. Being chosen by God will result. I capitalized that in my notes in case you didn't get the emphasis there, but I capitalized it. It will result in being tested by God. In other words, the point of the Christian life is not to escape such things, but to thrive through them. 
And I suggest in this episode of Abraham's life that we have a prototype of how God works in the life of every believer, everyone he chose, chooses. Now certainly the intensity and the circumstances are going to differ, but the elements of the testing, the way through the testing, the point, the purpose of the testing remain constant, whether it's Abraham here or whether it's us. And so let's take a look at what David read for us and what we're considering this week through this kind of three-step progression. What does it mean to be tested by God? First of all, what's it like? Number two, how does faith respond to this kind of testing by God? And number three, why does God test his chosen like this? So what does it mean to be tested? What's it like? How does faith respond? And why does God do this? Um, it should be apparent from the beginning of the Bible that Testing people is what God does. I mean, we could actually contend and I think make a strong case that the very first words spoken to the very first people were in essence a test. Adam and Eve were granted access to everything. In fact, they were rulers over everything that God had made except that one thing. And there was the test. They had to decide whether they were going to accept the word of the one who had made it all and gifted it all to them or whether they were going to trust an alternative word or whether they were going to look deep inside of themselves and find out what really they should trust. That was the test. And ever since throughout the book of Genesis and the Bible, God has been testing people. So it's not a surprise that it happens here. However, we need to understand that the test that we're talking about here is not like that academic sort of test where you have this body of knowledge and you have this paper in front of you and a certain amount of time and you take this test to determine whether or not you know all the right answers to all the questions that are asked. That's not the kind of testing that God is interested in. He, he is under concerned about the scope of our knowledge, but he is deeply concerned about the character of our faith. So he's testing something more than just knowledge. Now, faith certainly has a knowledge component. Don't get me wrong. But we all know that somebody could answer all the knowledge questions on a faith test correctly and still fumble badly the test of faith. So we're not talking about an academic test. We're not talking about a pass-fail test. At some point in your career, you may have to take one of those certification exams where you need to sit down at a computer or whatever and confirm that you know the necessary knowledge to do your job or you have the necessary skills to do your job. And if you don't pass that test, you can't have the job. The pressure is intense, but you've got to pass the test. That's not what we're talking about here. The testing that Abraham is going through is not, if you pass this test, you can get in. No. Abraham's already in. This is a test of somebody who has already passed, so to speak. So it's not an entrance exam. So if it's not an academic test, if it's not some kind of certification test, what are we talking about here? Well, the word testing in this particular passage comes from the business of assaying. Uh, we get the word assessment from it. It's where you look at something and you assess its integrity, its value. An assayer, A-S-S-A-Y-E-R, an assayer is somebody who takes a hunk of rock 
that somebody contends is a precious metal. And they apply a series of tests to that hunk of rock to verify that the rock is indeed a precious metal and in the end to actually make the metal in the rock more precious. And they do this by applying various pressures to the rock. Oftentimes they'll heat a furnace up to intense heat and they'll drop the rock in there. And everything that isn't the precious metal will burn off, float to the top, be scraped off, thrown away. Sometimes they'll submit it to this tremendously caustic acid that will fizz everything away that's not the actual metal. And in the end of the test, what is truly valuable will not only be proven to be valuable, it'll actually be more valuable than it was in that rock. Of course, the other side of that equation is also true. What wasn't valuable but perceived to be valuable will be burned off and proved to be just as false and just as worthless as it actually does, actually was. So when God tests his chosen one, he sets out to apply to that person's faith the same sort of test that an assayer applies to a precious metal. So let's think about this for a minute, okay? Your faith is your confidence in that great thing hoped for. And I'm going to contend that the great thing that we all hope for is this, that God is there. I know in popular society we have a lot of fairy tales and fantasies that talk about how wonderful it is in a world that has no God, that we're just this random accident, and you decide your own fate, you decide what's best for you, you become who you are, and on and on and on. Have you ever felt the despair of that? Have you ever tried really, 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 really hard to do that and succeeded? To the point where you're saying, dang, I made it. I'm good. I don't need anything more in life. I'm contending nobody in this room has. I'm contending nobody in this room ever will because that's not who we are. We were made by a God who is. And so faith begins with this bedrock hope. I hope he's really and it extends to this, I hope he's really good. Because if he's not, we're in deep weeds. I hope he's really there, and I hope he's really good. Faith is the confidence that God is really there, and that God is really good. And the crazy thing is, it's that kind of confidence that pleases God. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, without faith, the writer says, it's impossible to please God. For everyone who comes to God must, number one, believe that he is and that he rewards those who seek him, that he exists and that he's good. That's the deep hope of every human heart. It's built into us no matter what else we chase after. But here's the problem. Our thoughts, our intents, are inherently bent towards self-service. We each and all are more inclined to what is evil than to what is good. We are constantly deceiving and being deceived. Therefore, it's necessary for God to play the assayer, to assess our faith, so as to take from that rock we claim as faith what is not necessary 
and to refine what he knows to be there. And that's what we're contending. If you are chosen by God, you will be tested by God. If faith is like the precious metal that God aims to refine in testing, then circumstances and situations are the pressures that he permits and applies to bring out the purity, the truth, the value of our faith. You see that correlation? You get that? So in the first few sentences of Genesis chapter 22, I, I think we see a couple of common characteristics of uh, kind of situations and circumstances that make up a test from God. Let me, let me just kind of show you quickly in the text. So in verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. And God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love. Whoa, 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 stop right there. When God tests our faith, he is going to challenge what we love most. When God tests our faith, he's going to challenge what we love most. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. And that's because from God's perspective, he alone is the one we are to love above all others. The first and great commandment is this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. God knows, because he made us, that the way we will experience the best possible joy, the greatest possible freedom, is by as much as we love him, with the greatest possible intensity in our hearts. And that doesn't connect with us, but remember, that's because we're messed up, not because he's messed up. So when the test comes, we should be not surprised that God is going to challenge what we love most. And by that much, when God tests us, it is a very clarifying process. But it doesn't stop there. It says, the Lord said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. My guess is that when Abraham heard God call his voice, he did not know this was coming next. But this is exactly how God tests the faith of his chosen ones. He assaults what we hope for. He assaults what we hope in. Track with what's happening in Abraham's life here. Up to this point, Isaac was the visible, tangible hope of God's promise. If the promises of God were ever going to happen and his descendants would number as many of the, as many as the stars in heaven, then they would come through Isaac. But here's the reality. Sons who are totally consumed in a burnt offering in a far-off mountain don't produce babies. And if there are no babies produced, there are no offspring after that. So in this particular command, Abraham is challenged to confront what he is hoping in. When God tests our faith, he's intentionally confronting anyone or anything other than himself that we might be hoping in. There's slight nuance variance on this as well. We observe in the same passage that when God tests our faith, he confronts what we deem impossible or illogical or unimaginable. I mean, like Abraham, we all have these narratives 
we tell about our lives. How our life is going to play out. Today I'm going to do this, tomorrow I'm going to do that, and I'm on the next, next day. And we can actually play that out with some degree of internal confidence for several weeks. Maybe we've got a five-year plan. There you go, I've got a five-year plan. Got it marked out. This is how my life is going to go. And everything's going to just keep kind of going upward and to the right. For Abraham, that's the way it was at the end of chapter 21. I mean, for the first time in all his years in Palestine, he's finally got a semi-permanent place to live. I mean, he's made a peace treaty with the hostile Philistines. He's settled down. He planted a tree. I mean, guys who plant trees don't do it if they're going to pack up and move off in a couple of weeks. He set up his center of worship. He called upon the name of the Lord there. He lived there for many days. I mean, life had finally become predictable, manageable, maybe pleasant. Maybe for Abraham, ha, I finally entered the happily ever after stage of my life. And then you get to Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. That's the way it is. He will challenge, he will confront what we deem possible, what we deem logical, what we deem unimaginable. And when he does, he will do it in some totally unexpected way. Abraham's whole reason for building this comfortable life that he was enjoying in Beersheba was now to be led away to a distant mountain and offered there as a burnt offering. When God tests our faith, he's intentionally and intensely disruptive. Intentionally so. And in the test, it feels like we're losing something we can't survive without. I mean, in the test, the complacency that might otherwise degrade our faith must be eliminated. It must be taken care of. But here's the reality. We never lose what we cannot do without when God tests us. But we often discover what we really need is not what we thought. We cannot lose what we cannot do without when God tests us. But we often discover that what we really need is not what we thought. And that's how it happened with Abraham. So what happens next kind of displays who he loved most, didn't it? Who he truly hoped him. I mean, though he truly loved his only son Isaac, he loved God more. Though he truly hoped in the miraculous token of the promise that Isaac was, he hoped more in the God who had made Isaac the token of the promise that he was. Though God's command disrupted his predictable, manageable life, Abraham demonstrated that he needed God more than he needed that predictable, manageable life. And in fact, failing to respond to God was in essence choosing something else as the center of his life. That's exactly how God intends it to be in a test. That's what it is to be tested by God. And I'm contending. If you are chosen by God, you will be tested by God. Maybe not like this, but you will be. Mark it down. This is how God behaves. So that brings up the next question. So, man, if that's it, how does faith respond then to testing from God? Well, let, let's stick with the text in Genesis chapter 22 if you want to follow along. So after that interaction with God, Abraham rose early in the morning saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. 
And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. I mean, the first obvious thing you see here is that faith responds actively when being tested by God. There isn't an ounce of passivity in the passage I just read. I mean, if it were me, I could imagine myself waking up the next morning with a scratch and tickle in my throat. It's like, <coughs> maybe I shouldn't take this trip now because I'm just not quite feeling myself. Maybe I should just, I don't want to infect others. And so let's just hold off a day or two. Maybe I'll feel a little bit better. He didn't pull out his calendar. Oh, busy week coming down the pike for me. I mean, three days there, three days back. Hmm. We maybe need to put this off until hmm, possibly even next year. I can see myself doing that. I can actually see myself saying, boy, God, man, I know what you said, but surely you can't mean what you said. So there must be some kind of secret code that I'm supposed to discover here. And if I just crack that code, then I can unlock the treasures. Oh, I can see myself doing that. And every one of those responses leads to an inherent passivity. I do not do what God asked me to do. But we don't see that here in Abraham. Nor do we see that kind of unbelieving activity that kind of says, well, okay, fine. If that's the way you want it, okay. Isaac, get over here. Stomps off to Moriah. Can't believe he's asking me to do this. Grumbling, complaining, obedience. You never see, you see nothing about that in this story. I could understand myself doing that, though. I could see me behaving that way. Not Abraham. That's not the kind of active response that faith musters in the test. Abraham was an obedient active that grew out of love. However he might have felt about God's command, whatever was going on in his mind, we have not a clue. The only thing we know is that Abraham rose early in the morning, he saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and he arose and went to the place of which God had told him. That's how faith responds to testing from God. Uh, honest readers say, wait, 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 time out, time out. That seems a little bit extreme. I mean, this immediate all-in obedience, it's a little bit crazy, a little bit fanatical, a little bit irrational, possibly even bordering on cruel. And in the moment, it looks that way. Unless it's not. Unless it's not. Remember, Abraham did what he did because of who he loved more. Who he loved more. His obedience was an act of obedience of love. It was the obedience of a son with a father. It was the obedience of a sheep with a shepherd. It was the obedience of a soldier with his commander. It was the obedience of love born out of his love for God in which the only response that made sense was an immediate, all-in obedience. It's the only thing that made sense. Therefore, it was neither crazy nor irrational. He was fully engaged in the only thing that made any sense in the wake of having heard from God. It's not just 
that he respond actively, but we, we note that he responded thoughtfully. And, and I love how the writer of Hebrews, when he recounts this story, picks that up. He says, by faith, when he was tested, Abraham offered up Isaac, who had and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. The contradiction here is huge. But look what the writer says. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. I mean, God's command was this ultimate intellectual and emotional irreconcilable contradiction in Abraham's mind. Everything God had promised him to date hinged on Isaac. Through Isaac shall your offspring be named, the writer of Hebrews said. And now the same God who had given that entire promise is telling him to kill the one upon whom the entire promise hinges. Logically, the two things cannot coexist. Unless they can. Unless they can. Emotionally, the same thing is true. I mean, Abraham couldn't deny that this was God's voice who called him. It wasn't just a bad piece of lamb that he ate yesterday that was causing him to have this kind of, ooh, bad dream. No, Abraham had heard this voice before. It's the same voice that called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. It's the same voice that had led him. It's the same voice that walked through the cut-up animals that Ian talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's the same voice who showed up at the tent and said, about this time next year, you're going to have a little boy. It's that voice. Abraham couldn't deny that. I mean, emotionally, he couldn't reconcile how the God who had brought laughter into his life could now be demanding such horrific sadness. There was no putting these contradictions together. So when Abraham started off that morning, well, there were three things for certain in his head. Number one, God had promised to preserve Abraham's offspring through Isaac. And God cannot, will not break his promise. Number two, Isaac is a dead man walking. Nobody takes wood and a knife if they don't intend to follow through. He wasn't just play acting. If he was play acting, there would have been no wood cut, no knife called, anything like that. They would have just scampered off to wherever and, oh, we'll take care of all those details when we get there. No. As far as Abraham was concerned, that morning, Isaac was a dead man walking. Number three, Abraham and Isaac would be coming home together. Abraham knew these three things. Now, he had no idea how that was all going to come together, but he considered, he thoughtfully entertained that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead because he fully intended to kill him on the mountain. Testing from God challenges us to move past our logical conclusions. It challenges us to move beyond our emotional reservations and reactions thing. Testing from God doesn't call us to restrict our thinking about what's possible, but rather to expand it. It doesn't call us to entrench in the limited scope of emotion we're used to experiencing, but to step into situations where wonder and deep joy replace monotony and awful predictability. Too often it's our intolerance contradiction that prompts us to check out. You say, listen, this is the way this Christianity thing is going to be. 
I'm out of here. I don't need this kind of stuff in my life. I have enough problems already. I don't need this. When the test is actually calling us to step further into it, to expand how we think, to extend what we consider to be so. On the surface, it seems like the command to offer Isaac as a burnt offering contradicted everything that God had said to this point. But by thoughtful faith, Abraham knew it didn't. He knew it couldn't. What he didn't know that morning he woke up is how this new commandment aligned with everything else God had promised. God's command didn't incite him to check out. Rather, his thoughtful faith invited him to check in. I think it's safe to say that the one most tuned in to every step of the journey to Moriah was Abraham. I can't wait to see how God is going to work this out. I can't wait. At the same time, his faith didn't allow him to coast. I mean, he had to take every painful step on that three-day trek. He had to answer every difficult question. He had to go through the heart-wrenching process of tying up his son and raising the knife to plunge it into him. He had to endure the test. That active obedience and thoughtful engagement are the responses of faith that the writer of Hebrews is calling his readers to imitate in the midst of the testing that they were undergoing. And by extension, the same thing is true for us. Same thing is true for us. So what does a test look like? It's clarifying, it's disruptive, challenges what we love, assaults what we hope in, confronts what we deem logical. How do we respond? We respond actively, out of love. We respond thoughtfully, trying to get our minds around the things we know to be true but that are still incompatible in our reckoning. But that brings us to our final question. So why does God test like this? Why does he test the ones he chooses like this? And again, I think the passage highlights at least two reasons. God tests us to prove his worthiness as the object of our love. And then God tests us to improve our worthiness as the objects of his love. There's at least those two reasons in this particular test. Remember, the testing we're talking about is not academic. It's not a pass-fail test. It's not some kind of mean-spirited trick that the gods are playing on mere mortals to mess with them. Rather, this is the master assayer's test of a precious substance designed to purify that thing and make it even more valuable. There is no assayer who takes a million dollar hunk of precious metal and throws it in the furnace hoping to get a nickel's worth back when it's all said and done. Nobody would ever do that, nor does God, who is good beyond our ability to even comprehend goodness. So in the middle of this Genesis passage, right after stopping Abraham from plunging the raised knife into his son, God says to Abraham, kind of revealing what we're talking about here when he proves his worthiness as the object of his love. He says, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. 
Here's what that can't mean. It can't mean that God was uncertain about what Abraham was going to do, right? It can't mean that. He already knew how Abraham felt. He already knew everything there was. I mean, everything we read about God in Genesis so far informs us that he is the masterful, or the omnipotent, sovereign master of all things seen and unseen. There is nothing he doesn't know. There's nothing that catches him off guard. So he can't be saying, boy, this one really caught me by surprise. I didn't realize it was going to work out this way. He knew it was going to happen. So he's not saying that here. Nor is he making some kind of emotional, emotionally relieved uh, statement that says, whew, whew, you really do fear me. I just so need you to fear me. I'm so validated by the fact that you fear me. No, that's not it at all. God is God whether Abraham fears him or not. He didn't need Abraham to fear him. So, so, so what's happening here? If it's not those things, when God says, now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, what, what's happening? Well, let me suggest this. By virtue of Abraham's faithful obedience to his command, Abraham is testifying to anyone and everyone who will ever hear this story that his first and greatest loyalty and affection was to God alone. As he stood with that knife raised over his bound son, Abraham is declaring and displaying, God, I love him, but I love you more. Bam. Mic drop. That's the story. God tests his people to prove that he is indeed worthy of that kind of love. And I'm arguing that God knew that this is how Abraham loved him, and so he chose to test Abraham in order to display to everyone who would ever read the story, himself included, that Abraham loved God better than he loved his son. But that's not it. There's more. Testing from God not only proves that he is worthy as the object of our love, but it also improves our worthiness as the objects of his love. Last week in the message, Ian said something like this. Grace finds us where we are, but it will not leave us as it found us. That is so true. I mean, C.S. Lewis picks up on this in his book entitled Problem of Pain. He has this chapter about the uh, divine goodness of God. And it's this grace that's bent on making the objects of affection better. L listen to what Lewis says. He says, we are, not metaphorically, but in truth, a divine work of art. Something that God is making. And therefore, something with which he will not be satisfied until it has a certain character. And then he digresses a little bit. He says, you know, over a sketch made idly to amuse a child, well, an artist may not take much trouble. He may be content to let it go, even though it's not exactly what he meant it to be. But over the great picture of his life, the magnum opus, the work which he loves, he will take endless trouble. And then Lewis hits the nerve and would, doubtless thereby, give endless trouble to the picture. And again, he digresses. He says, imagine the picture had emotions. Imagine that it was a, a sentient picture. It was alive. 
How might that picture feel, if it could feel, after being rubbed and scraped and recommenced for the tenth time? The picture might actually wish it were only a thumbnail sketch whose asking was over in a minute. Then Lewis concludes, in the same way, it is natural for us to wish that God had designed us for a less glorious, a less arduous destiny. But we're wishing there, not for more love, but for less. Love may forgive all infirmities and love still in spite of them, but love cannot cease to will their removal. That's it. God tests us to improve us as the objects that he loves. The bottom line is this. If you're not tested by God, you're not chosen by God. If you're chosen by God, you will be tested by God. And he will prove through your testing his worthiness as the object of your love. And he will improve through his testing your worthiness as the object of his love. But there's a third reason, kind of a bonus point right here at the end, that God chose to test Abraham specifically in this way. I mean, in this unprecedented command offer of his only son, God is foreshadowing how it is that Abraham's promised offspring, namely Jesus, is going to multiply Abraham's descendants to rival the number of the stars in heaven and become the source of blessing to all the earth. Let me unfold that quickly in like three phases, okay? Number one, Moriah, Mount Moriah. It's actually a three-tiered peak. It's like a plateau, little rise, plateau, little rise, plateau. On the first little rise, the city of Jerusalem grew up, David's city. At the end of David's kingship, there was a crisis that took place and the angel of the Lord was on the top of the next little rise. And he said, offer a sacrifice here. And we discover that in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1, it was right there that Solomon built the temple, the place where God met with his people. It's the temple rock, the temple mount in Jerusalem today. That's that second tier of Mount Moriah. The third tier, a little bit farther up, came to be known as the place of the skull. It was Golgotha, the place where the ultimate sacrifice of sacrifices would take place. So right in that place, it's no mistake that what's playing out in Abraham's life is playing out on Mount Moriah. And then in this story, in the wisdom of God, Isaac was not going to die there. There's nobody safer on this trip than Isaac. Nobody. Everybody else was expendable in the promise of God. Isaac was not. So Isaac was not going to die, but a substitute would die in his place. It turns out a ram caught by his horns in a thicket would take his place. In other words, God would solve the dilemma his own command created. God would solve the dilemma his own command created. When Isaac asked his father about the unusual absence of a lamb for the burnt offering, Abraham kind of offers this cryptic response. Well, God will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. In Abraham's mind, he knew who that lamb was going to be. It's going to be you, but he was apparently not quite ready to tell him that yet. I can understand that. But when the whole thing 
resolved, out of Abraham's mouth comes this prophetic statement that looks at the situation in an entirely different way. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is sent to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And from this point in time, the idea of a substitute standing in the place of those condemned to die and dying in their stead becomes the bedrock theme of the Bible. I mean, you can't read the Bible without admitting that's what it's about. From the Levitical laws and the sacrifices, specifically the Day of Atonement, to the prophets who foresee this servant king bearing the sins of his people, suffering for their good, to the Gospels which confirm Jesus as that king who became the substitute for our sins on the cross, it all played out on the very mountain where this smaller drama of Abraham and Isaac is playing out. And then in perhaps the most profound foreshadowing of this whole story, at some point in the future from this story, there would be another father who would walk up the same mountain with his only son, the son he loves. This son would be bound to a wooden cross-shaped altar and where nothing ever pierced Isaac's skin, nails would pierce his extremities, spear would pierce his side. Where Isaac never died, this son would die. Where Isaac found a reprieve, this son found none. Unlike Isaac, he would be the lamb for the burnt offering. No ram in a thicket caught by its horns would be found to stand in his place. God would do this to his son through the devices of wicked men. He would do what Abraham never had to do. Why? Why? I mean, as much as God loved his own son. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes, whoever trusts in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And that's exactly how God fulfilled the angel's announcement at the end of this passage. I mean, listen to what the angel said. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. If it hasn't occurred to you, we are sitting here today talking like this because God, who swore by himself to Abraham on this mountain, has done exactly what he has said he would do. Exactly. We're gathered here this morning because we are the children of Abraham who have been chosen by God, who have put their trust in him, and as the chosen of God, we can expect that he will test us for our advantage, just like he did Abraham. Let's pray. Our Father, as is said in one place in the scriptures, this is a hard saying. We like our lives to be predictable. 
manageable, comfortable. We don't like the trauma of this kind of testing. But we are mixed up and confused people. We don't know what is best for us. You do. So Father, though it grieves us to affirm what we must, would you strengthen our faith? Would you open up to us an understanding of your goodness that is deeper and wider than we currently have? Would you help us to embrace and rejoice in your mercy in ways that we do not yet rejoice? Would you so work in our lives so that as we and anybody else who cares to look at them might observe what you are doing in us is declaring and displaying the glory of your son Jesus who did exactly this enduring the cross despising the shame give us grace we know father that we can trust you and we want to love you our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. Help us to that end, we pray through Jesus.